been a member among you all at the body here of Northwest. And I think regardless of my title and whether or not the body affirms the calling that I feel like the Lord has laid on my life, that is my role, is just to be among the body and be with you all, encouraging all of us towards love and good deeds. So I'm appreciative of the opportunity. And I want to touch a little bit of my story, point us back to the scripture, and then bring it back to why am I here in this moment? And so if you have your Bibles, I'll encourage you. We're going to look at Psalm 40. And so you can go ahead and turn there. And while you do, I think the guys have a, a picture of my family. So those that are maybe not familiar with, with who I am, uh, this was a photo that uh, was our family last year on a beach vacation, which is why there's that white sand dune in the background. Um, but starting, you know, we're like the AT&T bars or, you know, the cell phone signal on your screen, right? It's a perfect lineup. But Amelia is the, the smallest one there on the, my right, your left. She's four years old. Madeline in the middle is eight. Dylan is 10. And then my wife, Anna, for the past 13 years, um, just a faithful partner in ministry. But that is who we are. And I've been in the world of finance uh, in two different roles. I started my career after graduating from OU in banking. Started as a teller. It wasn't a glamorous job during my college days, but worked up into some management roles there at a local community bank here in Oklahoma City. And then a friend from OU reached out and said, hey, I work for the Federal Reserve. Would you be interested in coming? And so for the past seven years, I've been in uh, two different roles, but all within uh, the Federal Reserve system. And so I've seen kind of this big government aspect of my work and then a small local community aspect. But in both things, as lay people, and I think you all that, that have jobs that are vocationally not tied or affiliated with the church, you can relate that is the best laboratory to grow in your faith, is to day in and day out have a master that you are reporting to and that you have to work hard for in a way that you're working as if unto the Lord himself. And it's not always glamorous, but we are lights shining in the midst of darkness. And so there's going to be an aspect of me that if this is the direction that the Lord has me going in, that vocational calling as a layperson, I'm going to miss but I think for those 15 years, God has been laying a platform to allow me to understand what it means to shepherd people in the marketplace. And so I'm excited to come alongside you in that role. But from a young age, um, I, I tell people, and I think when I was doing the interview with the personnel team, I told them this too, I wish there were more testimonies like my own. I think when I was younger, and youth, maybe you all can relate to this, um, I would hear a lot of testimonies from people that the ones that struck me were always the ones that I couldn't relate to where somebody was just had a terrible life or a terrible upbringing, a terrible experience, was very far from the Lord, and the Lord intervened in this very dramatic way, right? It's kind of like a Saul on the road to Damascus moment. And then that was when they were converted. And I'm like, that is not my story at all. I grew up in a godly family. Both of my parents uh, walked with the Lord very faithfully and taught me what it means to walk with the Lord through their example. And so I came to faith at an early age, and I didn't really have necessarily the past that I could point to of identifying what did a life of sin look like before I came to Christ because it was maybe just simple disobedience to my parents, right? Nothing really that I felt like was significant compared with some of the other testimonies. But my hope and prayer is that there would be more testimonies like that among the church. We should expect as God's people that when we raise godly families, our children walk in the faith alongside us, that we are passing down from generation to generation the faith we've been given. And I grew up in a very uh, strong, healthy church, 
where it was modeled for me what it meant for the pastor to be a shepherd of the people, not about themselves, and for the other ministers and ministries that were in the church of what it meant to go into the community and reach out. And then that continued in my college days when I was at OU and the collegiate ministries that I was involved in from a parachurch perspective. And through all those things, God was laying a foundation that I feel like for me, and it's culminating in this moment, where officially I'm laying down my life, laying down my career and my interest and pursuing wholeheartedly what the Lord has placed upon my life, which is to come into the church as a pastor and shepherd you all towards love and good deeds and to be near the Lord. A lot of what I'm going to preach this morning is probably going to feel like I'm an older uh, version of Scott, but I am basically going to preach almost the exact same message, and I told him that last week, that he stole my notes. Uh, I wasn't going to use Philippians 3, but I'm not surprised because I think both what Scott preached last week and what I'm going to preach this morning, it is simply the gospel, and we need to be reminded of that constantly, and it doesn't matter if we're reading it from the Old Testament like we're going to do today, or if we read it from Philippians like Scott did last week, the gospel is the same message. It translates into the same language, which is one of action and application. And so Psalm 40, if you've turned there, uh, you can kind of glance with me. But in the section of Psalms, Psalms 38 through 41, it's four distinct Psalms that David has written. And the first few, 37 through 39, are really David waiting on the Lord to intervene in his life. And We aren't quite sure what season of life it is for David. Um, Some attribute these psalms to when his life was being hunted by King Saul. And so David is crying out to God, I know you anointed me to be the king. I just don't see where the future is for me in this. And so it's David crying out for an intervention as the result of the sin in Saul's life that's affecting David. But we also know David was called a man after God's own heart. And while he's titled that way, we also know he's a man of significant failures, isn't he? He's an adulterer. He's a liar. He's a murderer. Towards the end of his life, his whole family is just in disarray. He's, He's really not a great example if you're looking for someone that their sons walked faithfully in his line, right? His son betrays him, tries to take over the kingdom. And so whatever season of life it is that David's writing this, The principle, I think, is what he experienced throughout his life. Whether it was his sin or the sins of someone else, he appeals to God to lift him up out of his situation. And this psalm specifically, we won't have time to read the entire thing, so I'd encourage you to take some time today or later this week to really meditate upon it. But what's interesting is it's David writing it as the king and showing how his benefit from the Lord actually benefits the entire kingdom and specifically the people of God that he's called to lead. And as you kind of back up and you think that's exactly the role of the church. Individually, we are all members of one another. And what the Lord has done in the life of one affects all of us. We come alongside, we suffer together, we mourn together, but we also rejoice together. And so as we read this psalm, I hope that you see the blessing that it is to be part of the local church. But what we're going to focus on in a moment is this psalm also gives us a messianic prophecy, which if that sounds fancy, all it is is it's saying it's an allusion to what Christ was going to do in his life. And that's where we're going to look today. If you'll stand with me, uh, our tradition or custom here is that when we read the word of God together, I'll read it out loud, but we stand in honor of it. So we're going to read 
Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8. And if you don't have a Bible with you today, you can follow along on the screens behind me. But David writes, and he's speaking to God. He says, in sacrifice and offering, God, you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me, I delight to do your will, O oh my God. Your law is within my heart. Let me pray and then we can be seated after I pray. Father, we, we need to hear the truth from your word. And we are no better than David. We've been in moments where we've been sinned against and we are crying out to you to intervene, God, and just show some glimpse of hope as a result of other people's sin negatively affecting our life. And we've also been in David's shoes where we have sinned against you, Lord. And whatever that situation is this morning, Father, I pray that your word would just speak clearly to us. And Lord, as I communicate it, my prayer is that you would not allow me to say anything that is not from the truth of your word. And God, that the attitude and the tone of which I communicate it is honoring to Christ first and foremost, Lord. And that it benefits all of us to hear your word and to be able to respond to it this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Well, our first point this morning is where this psalm starts, right? The Lord delights to rescue and restore, and he has made those actions, his rescue, his restoration, our testimony. If you look at with me, we're going to back up to verses 1 through 5 and just very briefly break this down before we look at the meat of this passage, which is verses 6 through 8. But David here, he starts by saying, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. The Psalms are all poetry, and they're meant to draw images that we can relate to how God interacts with us firsthand. So, what David is, is giving here is a picture of, he understands his position as one of humility, right? God is above him, holy and powerful and almighty. So what does God do? He inclines himself to David. And what's interesting is, what's David's situation? In verse 2, he identifies that he's in this pit of destruction. He's in the miry bog. And it's in that situation that God comes down into the mess of David's life, inclines himself to that position, and does what? He reaches out and he sets him upon the firm foundation. He sets his feet upon a rock. He makes his steps secure. And what's interesting for us, I think, is that I don't think we always think through our relationship of sin to God in those terms. A lot of times I think we think God owes me the forgiveness and mercy because that's who he is, but we don't incline ourselves first to say, Lord, I know I'm not deserving of your grace and your mercy, so I need you to act. But David understands his position that even though he's the king, even though he's anointed to be God's chosen one, he still comes before the Lord humbly. And what's interesting here, I think, is I was thinking through it. Uh, you saw the picture of our four-year-old Amelia. Uh, if, if you kind of are anything like our family, summertime in Oklahoma heat, you've got to find open water, right? Whether that's a pool or a lake, you need to find some way to refresh yourself. And so this winter, we set out on the adventure of swim lessons. 
And what started is, you know, her learning just the safety skills, right? Roll on your back if you fall into a pool. And then eventually learning to get comfortable with your face in the water and kick and swim. Uh, We saw her progress in her confidence to where when the summertime arrived, we were ready to go to the pool. And we used a, a little thing. I remember when I was growing up, it was just floaties on your arms. Now they have these things called puddle jumpers. That, you know, is just this whole vest that you can put on your child and they're, they're fantastic. I wish I had one as an adult. I could just, you know, bob in the, in the water. But what was interesting is we have access to two pools, right? The in-laws have a pool that we go over to their house a lot. And then we have our neighborhood pool. And our neighborhood pool is a little unique because it has a diving board. And so we got to the beginning of the summer and our older kids, they love with their neighborhood friends to go to the diving board and jump off into the deep end. And you could tell Amelia was kind of working this through in her mind. I want to do what they're doing. I just don't think I should. And so we would put her puddle jumper on her and say, okay, you can do it. And so the first couple of times, right, it's walking her to the edge of the diving board. She's not ready to commit. And then finally, you know, it's like, okay, I'll hold your hand and you go, or I'm going to stand at the end and I'll catch you when you jump in. And she learned like, oh, this device is going to save my life. I can just float and kick to the side. But we told her like, that's not where you want to be. Don't you want to be like one of the older girls? And she said, yeah, I do. And so then we would kind of back up and say, all right, let's take off the puddle jumper. And so at first I would sit, you know, plant myself in the front of the diving board and say, okay, Amelia, jump. And I would catch her, right? Then I would back up a little bit more. Okay, jump. So that she gets the sensation of falling in the water and swimming towards me. And then I'd work myself towards the ledge and say, hey, listen, if I see you sinking, Amelia, I will and ask him to act in our life. We expect him to act because he is a loving father who inclines himself to our position and puts us up on the solid rock. But the second point of this first point that we're talking about, it's not just that the Lord delights to rescue and restore, but what? That he's made those things our testimony. The fact that he has rescued and restored your life is the testimony that we hold as followers of Christ. And that's where we see in verses three through five. Look with me again. He says, God, he put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts towards us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. I like to think of it this way. The Lord rescues and restores us, and that is an ongoing process that we we know we struggle with sin even after we come to faith in Christ. But what's interesting, verse 3, God gives us new songs when we experience fresh grace in our life. And when you think about how our life is to be one of worship, when it becomes stagnant is when we're willing to live in the past grace and the past mercy that the Lord offered And not willing to stretch out and say, Lord, I need to live a life that is pursuing you in the midst of all the mess that's going on. And so we refuse to be complacent people, mediocre Christians. We say, no, Lord, I'm going to risk my life to follow you, even when that means that I'm going to stumble and fail because I know that you will restore me to yourself. And as a result, what does he give us? Fresh faith. I mean, you can see it through the lives of the people you interact with, right? You know the difference when you're talking with somebody of stale, dead faith that is not being exercised and the one that is walking with the Lord actively. 
So the question for us is, how do we become those kind of followers of Christ? We do it by living in gospel community. And as we live in community with one another, we all of a sudden find out, oh, David's not as good as what I thought he was. He needs God's mercy and grace as much as I do. And then you look across and you say, oh, and, and my other friend, they struggle with the same thing that I do. And it's when we're in gospel community that we begin to experience what David says, right? Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Those that are outside the family of God begin to see our lives, see us struggle with the same things that they struggle with, but they see the hope that comes from the Lord's rescue and restoration. And then the second piece of it is what we see in verse 5, that God begins to multiply his thoughts and his deeds toward us, the plural, right? The community of God. And so if you're here this morning, the first question is, if you're not in a church family, you need to be in one, because that is where you experience the fullness of God's grace, and it's the way he's designed it that I can experience more of his grace is through your life being shared with mine. But the second piece of it is that if our community is not willing to come alongside those that are hurting and caught in sin and restore them back to the Lord, then we have not experienced the gospel, and we're not putting it into practice. And I think for a lot of us, we get to these points where there may be sins that are ongoing in our life that we struggle with. And we're going to talk later about how do I identify if, as Jesus said, you'll know a tree by its fruit. The youth heard that this week from Shane when he was preaching at Falls Creek. But for us, how do I know that I'm actually a good tree if I still have some of these sins that I struggle with? And we're going to talk about that. But I think more fundamental than that is, do you desire to be restored to the Lord? And if that desire is, is present and evident in your life, that is the Holy Spirit bringing about conviction that you would humble yourself before the Lord so that he can incline himself to hear you and bring him back. And when we see, and this is our transition to back to verses 6 through 8, think through what God gave to atone for your sin. He gave all of himself, Jesus Christ, his entire son's life in exchange for yours and mine. And that leads us to our second point this morning, that the Lord has rescued and restored us eternally through Christ's perfect sacrifice. What Christ has done is illustrated in verses 6 through 8. We're going to make a connection to the New Testament in just a moment. But first, I think we need to remind ourselves, we are fully pure, and that is most important because it's in whose eyes? God's eyes. First John 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from just a little bit of unrighteousness. No, all unrighteousness has been removed because of Christ. And so if we receive God's righteousness and we're fully clean and pure, we're not only sanctified and justified by Christ's sacrifice for our sin, but for us, and especially in our modern individual age where we like self-help books and trying to figure out how can I just make myself feel better about my situation— Jesus does something even more than just making you feel good. Romans 8, 1, he's transferred all the guilt and shame of your sin to himself. Romans 8, 1, Paul says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you are in Christ, you will sin. And it does not matter what that sin is. You are covered by his grace. You are made clean. You are holy and pure in his eyes. Not because you chose to repent of that sin, but because of what Christ has done on your behalf. 
right? Scott said it last week in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, we're saved by grace through faith, not of your own doing, not a result of works so that no one can boast, and we're made his workmanship. But the key passage this morning that, that just really jumped out to me when I was meditating on this a couple weeks ago is the aspect specifically to Christ's life that this touches on. And we're going to look at a passage in Hebrews. Don't turn there yet. I'll give you time to do it. But I want you to go back with me to Psalm 40, verse 6. David says, In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Your Bible may have a footnote. It may say something like in the Hebrew, it's literally ears you have dug for me. And again, this is all poetry, right? It's meant to draw an image. So when you think through God digging ears for you, what are we told in Genesis that we're created out of? The dust of the earth. So it's this beautiful word picture of God has designed your body to be responsive to him. He's equipped you that you can hear because you have ears. And in the Hebrew language, it would be understood that it's not the physical thing itself, but it's pointing to what it's supposed to represent in your life. So if you have ears, you're supposed to be able to hear something. And if you're hearing, it should be processed in a way that you understand so that then you can apply what you've heard into your life. If I went out here and stood at 23rd and Drexel, and we all know, because we hear it occasionally on Sunday mornings, a fire truck or an ambulance peeling out 23rd Street to go save someone... If I choose not to hear that and I'm getting ready to cross 23rd Street, it would not be wise and I would not be understanding if I didn't process that sound and think, I need to figure out where this is coming from before I get hit by that truck, right? In the same way, God has designed your life in a way that you can hear him in order to be responsive. And the writer of Hebrews carries it a little bit further. So flip with me. Hebrews 10, verses 5 through 10. We'll look there together. Hebrews 10, 5 through 10. In this section, there's a couple things that are good for us to understand. It's called Hebrews. We don't know who the specific author is, but it was written to people of Jewish descent. Therefore, it's called Hebrews. And it was a defense. It's a great defense. If you're trying to figure out, as Rob's preaching through the Old Testament and seeing all of Christ into it, Hebrews explains why all these sacrifices and things come to fruition in Christ. And it it points us back to how the Old Testament was fulfilled in Jesus. And in this section, it's talking specifically about Christ's one sacrifice took care of all of the system of offerings that the Old Testament required, the law of Moses. So looking with me, Hebrews 10, verses 5 through 10. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, and this is a direct quote from what we're reading in Psalm 40, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. But a body you have prepared for me. He changes it, doesn't he? He doesn't use the terminology of ears because he understands that the practical application that we see in Christ is that Christ became a man for a purpose. And we're going to make that connection in a second. So Jesus has a body prepared for him. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you've taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I've come to do your will, O God, as it is written in me in the scroll of the book. And when he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasures and sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these that are offered according to the law, then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. 
So what we can make the connection to is, yes, Jesus was given a body. He lived a human life to be the sacrifice for us, right? We saw that in, in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. But more importantly for us, and where we get this idea in verse 10, that by the will of Jesus demonstrated through his earthly life, we now understand what it means to know God and to walk in obedience to him. And here's the connection. Jesus' greatest joy and satisfaction was much more than just laying down his life. It was to accomplish the will of the Father in whatever it was. And we've been doing this uh, Gospel of John study on Sunday mornings with a small group. Um, and we looked a couple weeks ago at the story of the woman at the well with Jesus. And Jesus sits by the well. He's waiting. His disciples go ahead to the next town to get food and some water for Jesus to help recover him after a long journey. And they come back and they see him talking to this woman. They've brought him food and Jesus refuses to eat. He, he wants to be active in this ministry moment. In John four thirty four, he specifically tells them, I have food that you all don't even know feeds me. It sustains me. And that food is to do the will of my father. And then skip ahead. We know in the final scene, Matthew 26, 39, the scene of the garden of Gethsemane, Jesus falling to his knees, crying out to God. And what does he pray? Father, if possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not what I will, but you will be done. And where we can make this connection, I think summarized well by John Piper, who's a a pastor, has this quote. He says, God is most satisfied in me when I am most satisfied in him. God is most satisfied in us when we are most satisfied in him. And Jesus exhibited that, didn't he? His greatest joy, even in the midst of suffering, was simply knowing that he's doing the will of the Father, whatever it is in that moment, and moving on with his life because he's walking in full obedience to the Lord. And so when we look at this passage in Hebrews 10 and we look at it in the context of what David's writing in Psalm 40 we understand it's not that God is saying he doesn't delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices. He still wants something sacrificed to him, but it it transforms what we bring to the Lord, right? Because what he's saying is, I don't want you to bring me anything that's not first transformed by a decision of your will. And the only way that our will can be changed is when the heart is changed. We know in Jeremiah 31, we looked at it a couple weeks ago, the Lord promises to give us a new heart so that we can be responsive to the will of God in our life. And, and so what God is looking for here is we look at in burnt offerings and sacrifices you've not delighted, but ears or a body you have given me, you've prepared for me. What God is saying is he's not after duty, he's after delight, and delight only comes as a result of humbling ourselves and doing the will of God. And so Christ lives in a way that it not only restores us back perfectly in our relationship to the Father, but it shows us how to live obedient lives before him. And so that brings up our our third point. God has rescued and restored us, made those our testimony. He's done it for all eternity and secured us through Christ. Therefore, God's covenant love is designed to be displayed for eternity through the lives of his people. We won't have time to look through all of it, but if you go back to Psalm 40, Verses 9 through 10 and 14 through 16 talk about this. But before he begins in verse 9, look again at what he says at the close of verse 8. 
David's writing says, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. And the writer of Hebrews attributes the same verse and passage to Christ. And so what we can understand is that David and Jesus' delights were always to do the will of God the Father. And if we've been given the life of Christ as our own, then that should become our delight as well. And how do we know that we've been given Christ's life? Because we're told. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 17. That 2 Corinthians 5 chapter is a great one if you want to look for some key verses to memorize about who you are in Christ. But verse 17 reminds us, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone. New things have come. Paul echoes the same thing, but even more forcefully in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And because you've received all of Christ's life, how now shall we live? The famous Francis Schaeffer quote, right? If all of God has been poured out into me through Christ, then what do I have to show for it? Well, Paul gives us the practical application. We're getting a lot of exercise in our Bibles this morning or on your Bible apps. Flip over to Romans 12, 1 and 2. Paul gives us the perfect application of what David is talking about in Psalm 40. And you, many of you may know these verses well. But Paul writes in Romans 12, 1 through 2, I appeal to you, therefore, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Think through. David made an appeal to the Lord. The Lord inclined and heard him, right? His appeal was to the mercies of God. And Paul does the same thing. I appeal to you all, the church, in view of the mercies of God, quit living average ho-hum lives. Be transformed by Christ. He says, by the mercies of God, what God has done in your life, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. As we see, not only does God still delight in a burnt offering and sacrifice, which has now become your life, but even more so what? He's looking for your will to be transformed so that you can do it not out of duty, but out of a response of what the cross represents, that your old self is gone, your new life is all Christ. We're a living sacrifice because of what Christ has done. We're holy and acceptable and pleasing in all of life. Why? Because of what Christ has done. And it becomes a spiritual act of worship. If we think that our worship is simply gathering together and singing songs that we're comfortable singing or looking at passages of scripture that we're comfortable reminding ourselves of, then we've missed the mark. The goal of spiritual worship is to leave this place and that your body and your mind have been transformed by the living God to live in a way that reflects Christ and not yourself. And here's where he picks up, right? Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Youth, you heard Shane Pruitt say this. I was with you all Wednesday night, and I wrote it down when he said it. But this is his quote. The gospel changes your identity and then changes your activity. 
Baptists, we like to flip that. Hey, get your life together, and then the Lord will come and make your heart his home, right? That's not the way it works. Jesus is the one who says, I stand at the door and knock. And he would open the door. You don't have to clean up any of the junk that's in your heart. He stands ready to come in. Shane Pruitt went on to say, the gospel changes who I am and then changes what I do. My application of it, actions follow the will. If you want your actions to be pleasing to the Lord, then you first and foremost, your will has to be surrendered to who he is and what he's calling you to do. And we talked about it earlier, Jeremiah 31, it only comes by heart transformation. So if you've not received the life of Christ as your own, then this is going to be an impossible task. You'll be spinning your wheels constantly. And at best, you're a morally good-looking person on the outside, but inside your whole heart is upside down. There's no rhyme or reason to why you do what you do. There's no pleasure in living the life that you live because you are not at peace with God. And if the Spirit of God has been placed in your life so that you can live as Christ lived, then what do you have to show for it? We talked about a tree is known by its fruit. Church, we should be the ones that are able to show the world what it looks like to constantly be restored to God the Father by the mercies of God through the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf. There is no condemnation There may be temporary shame when we have to expose our sins towards one another as the body, but we should be the first and foremost to come alongside to a brother or sister that's caught in sin and say, the Lord still loves you, the Lord sees you as clean, and that's how I see you too. As we kind of close out, we obviously are going to remember the Lord's Supper. And it's interesting, the Lord's Supper is the perfect representation of Christ laying down his life for us, for our benefit. And we are told in turn to lay down our lives for not only Christ, but for one another. And so for the past several years, I've been thinking through my own walk with the Lord. And there's been a lot of frustrations over sin in my own life that the Lord had to work through and reconcile me back to himself. There have been other times where, again, this calling on the Lord for me to want to shepherd people, I've awkwardly tried to do it in different circumstances, and it didn't go well, because I was always trying to do something on my own, and I was never really living out the will of God for my life. But I've come to this point, and there's going to be these questions on the screen, that I really started asking myself, what will be said of my life? And you may have come to that kind of point throughout the pandemic, You know, everything got turned on its head, everything put on pause. And what was interesting, I think, for some of our friends, Anna and I saw the opposite happen with them during the pandemic than what happened in our lives. For us, probably the years 2017 through 2019 were the most difficult. Either areas of personal loss, frustrations in our professional lives, um, relationships with friends that just were not going well. And what was interesting is I I got a lot of counsel from Rob through that season of life. And I think the Lord had us go through it before the pandemic. Because then we were actually strengthened in our faith when everything hit. And we were able to be the strong ones for the ones that needed encouragement and courage during the pandemic. And the Lord brought us renewed community. And we actually saw ourselves more spiritually healthy at probably the lowest point that our world has seen in, in a number of years. And I think it was all by the Lord's design. 
And as I stand before you today, I can't help but think through the same thing. That there's a lot of things that I'm laying on the altar in order to pursue this calling of God, the will of God for my life. Uh, I'm going to leave a very comfortable job. But I've seen enough people in my life that have made career their end goal that it has all but extinguished the flame and fervor and love for Christ in their life. That they've been great executives and they've been Christians in title uh, and they flipped those roles where they should have just been an executive in title but a follower of Christ in everyday life. And I refuse to make that my own testimony. And I've also seen the Lord transform from serving the church, expecting something in return for my own benefit, right? We're not a quid pro quo type people here. Um, I scratch your back, you scratch my back. That's not who we are as the church. And so the Lord has matured me in my service to say, hey, even if no one follows, even if no one else is going to go to the lengths that I'm going to go to serve, I'm going to go to that length, not because it does me personally the good that I'm expecting, but because it's honoring to the Lord, because that's what Christ modeled for me, and I want to live his life. And then as I think through with my children, you know, Anne and I have been talking through, you know, what do we want our children to say about this season of life for us as parents? And there's a lot of counsel that we could seek that would say, this is a foolish decision. Think of what you're leaving on the table for your kids' inheritance by giving up your job and this security that the world has to offer. And I think, you know what? I've read enough personal examples from this book to know that the Lord will take care of my kids' inheritance and has a better inheritance than what the world can offer them on the other side of eternity. And I've also read enough missionary examples that I know that if I want to powerfully be used by the Lord, it's going to require a lot of sacrifice on my part. And church, it may be time for us to not vocationally change your identity of what you do, but to begin asking God, what are the sacrificial steps that would really show that I have the life of Christ as my own? And that's the last question. What's going to be said of your life? If you're not on the right path today, uh, there may be two reasons why. One is you don't know the Lord. Everything we've been talking about does not make sense. And you've never heard the gospel clearly communicated. And today is the time for you to seek godly counsel. First and foremost, through his word. Read the Bible. It explains who Christ is and what he's done. But any of us among you today would be happy to visit with you about what it means to follow the Lord And to place your faith in him. But the other reason may be you do know the Lord, but your life has been on the wrong path for a long time. And the Lord is seeking and calling you out. He stands ready just like he was with David. He wants to incline himself to you. He wants to rescue you and restore you back to himself. And there's a a third group. Those two, they need rescue and restoration. There's many of you in the body today that are faithfully walking with the Lord. But we need to break out of the closet of our devotional lives and break out of the quiet prayer rooms that we have and get our hands dirty in the lives of other people. We need community here at Northwest. We need to know one another. Last week, our small group uh, joined up with an older group. And it was a blessed time for us to get to hear those in the faith that are much 
further in their walk with the Lord than I am right now of how they relate to the same passage of Scripture. And that's what we need here at Northwest. You can look around. We are a multi-generational church. We need more ethnicities represented here. The Lord will bring that and do that as we begin to genuinely love and care for one another. And the last piece that I'll close with is Psalm 46 through 8 is the Lord's Supper. And burnt offerings and sacrifices you've not delighted, but you've given me a body, and my body has become the sacrifice. As we take of the Lord's Supper, Paul reminds us in Corinthians that we shouldn't do it lightheartedly. Um, We need to examine ourselves before we take it. And that's what this time is going to be. In a moment, the worship team is going to come up. We're going to sing a song of response. um, And we're going to invite you to respond. Uh, Rob and I will both be up here, and we would be happy to visit with any of you that need prayer or have questions about what we're talking about today and what, what it may look like to have next steps with faith in Christ. But I know Cody mentioned it. A lot of our youth, and even going back to Champs Camp, some of our children have made decisions to their life, either for salvation in the Lord or to yield their life totally up to his control. And so during this time, we want to encourage you all to come forward because we want to recognize before the body what the Lord is doing in our midst. And so as the worship team comes, I'm going to close by reading a poem. It's uh, written by a missionary. His name was C.T. Studd. He was part of a group that became known as the Cambridge Seven. It was a a group of seven college-age students that studied at Cambridge University in the late 19th century. They were converted through the uh, evangelistic missions of D.L. Moody when he was touring through Great Britain. And C.T. Studd, at the time, was kind of a big deal. He was a a nationally known athlete. He played cricket. Uh, He was written up in newspapers for his skills and his athletic abilities. He was obviously a smart young man, able to go to Cambridge University and study there. But the other thing that that signified is he was also a child of significant means. Uh, His father had made quite a fortune working in India, and they had a comfortable life in the UK. And he was converted at a young age in his college years through those D.L. Moody crusades, and he gave his life fully to the Lord, sold his inheritance, went all in on missions, was a missionary in China, India, and Africa, and was really a spark for kind of the modern missions movement that we saw in the 20th century, particularly among college-age students. And uh, he wrote this poem, and I had heard lines of it, but never knew it was attributed to him. And it made it all the more impactful and significant for me. And I'm going to leave us with this and then pray as we close our time together. But it'll be up on the screen. You can follow along with me. Two little lines I heard one day. Traveling along life's busy way, bringing conviction to my heart, and from my mind would not depart. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Soon will its fleeting hours be done. Then in that day, my Lord to meet and stand before his judgment seat. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, the still small voice, gently pleads for a better choice, bidding me selfish aims to leave and to God's holy will to cleave. Only one life, t'will soon be past. Only what's done for Christ will last. 
Only one life, a few brief years, each with its burdens, hopes, and fears, each with its days I must fulfill, living for self or in his will. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. When this bright world would tempt me sore, when Satan would a victory score, when self would seek to have its way, then help me, Lord, with joy to say, only one life will soon be passed, and only what's done for Christ will last. Give me, Father, a purpose deep in joy or sorrow, thy word to keep, faithful and true, whate'er the strife, pleasing thee in my daily life. Only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. Oh, let my love with fervor burn, and from the world now let me turn, living for thee and thee alone, bringing thee pleasure on thy throne. Only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Now let me say, thy will be done. And when at last I'll hear the call, I know I'll say, twas worth it all. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Let's pray and stand with me. Father, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you um, that it is solid when our faith is, is shallow and weak. And Lord, we at this time bring ourselves before you, asking that you'd incline yourself to us. Father, we thank you that you gave Christ. Lord, we pray that you would empower our lives to be worthy of his sacrifice for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.